Welcome back. My name is Dr. Brian Williams, and this is Helping Healthcare Become Healthy and Caring. This is our Lecture 3A, and it's tentatively titled Bioethics, Resources, and Politics. But we've got some interesting attributes to this lecture that I think you'll enjoy. I'll discuss those in a moment. But welcome. I'd like to begin with some definitions that uh, have come up in, in the OSHA lectures, and you may have also thought uh, and wondered about how I'm defining the various terms that I'm using, and I'm pleased to, to always do that. Some of the words we've been using uh, that I'd like to define, uh, and we've worked uh, on the concept of liberty, the concept of freedom, and the concept of autonomy. And so the concept of liberty is the freedom from various kinds of control, restraint, or interference by others. So liberty is that uh, very, very broad understanding of freedom. Freedom itself is the power to or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. That's freedom. It also means the absence of subjugation to foreign domination or despotic government. And uh, an, a way that I often define things to try and understand them is to think of it in its inverse. The inverse of freedom is enslaved. Therefore, freedom is not enslaved. And if you recall, our definition of autonomy is to govern oneself. And that means freedom and liberty. But I'd like to introduce a concept that I think is crucial to understanding liberty. To understand liberty, you have to ask is it in relationship or partnership with some other word that allows it to be a positive moral force in our society? And I'd like to argue that freedom must be in relationship to the word duty. Freedom is therefore symmetrical with duty. And so I use the term to say symmetrical by meaning it's it's a term that's actually connected to another term, and if you break it away from its connection, then it really doesn't have any meaning, and it, it becomes uh, unfortunate. And one of the, one of the uh, virtues uh, that, that we have as Americans is our life of liberty. But I'd like to argue that liberty can become a vice if all you're doing is wanting more and more liberty, uh, then it becomes a vice in your life. And so a definition that I'd like to offer you as well is a virtue becomes a vice when it is not connected to its, its symmetrical virtue. Let me continue that thought so that we understand it better. Liberty is symmetrical with duty. 
So if we take liberty as the freedom uh, for, from various kinds of control, restraint, or interference by others, liberty being symmetrical with duty, and duty I will define in this sense as freedom to allow various kinds of control, restraint, or interference by others. So we as citizens have a duty that, that we purposefully and willfully restrain so that we can have liberty. And so we have liberty to do much, but not liberty to, to, do, to do all. And so we allow ourselves to be restrained by something exterior to ourself. And an easy illustration is a police officer. We allow a police officer to restrain our liberty so that all citizens can live a free life. And it's freedom for most, not in, in that sense, freedom from most things, but not everything. A police officer can give us a ticket for speeding in our community. We have allowed them to, to, to do that so that we can have a, a, uh, a healthy community. Having every vehicle running 70 miles an hour down our streets with our children playing would cause death and destruction in our neighborhoods. So we willfully allow authorities to restrain us in ways that would hurt the overall community. We have a duty to, to drive less than 30 miles an hour in our communities so that our communities are safe. So we don't have, we don't have unlimited liberty. We have limited liberty that is restrained by duty. And so these two, these two terms function together. They're symmetrical. Liberty is symmetrical with duty. And so if someone only uses a term, liberty, I want freedom, and they don't offer it symmetrically with duty, then their liberty probably is turning into a vice or has already turned into a vice and the liberty becomes destructive to community. I hope that begins to understand the importance of symmetrical thinking when we try and understand the core concepts of, uh, of, of an idea like liberty. So in work, week three, we're going to begin this conversation. And we're first going to talk a, a little bit about the local and regional bioethics resources. And then we're going to reshape politics. I sense that you've already realized from my opening conversation that this is a political conversation. And the idea of, of symmetry is going to reshape our politics. We're going to start with a case study conversation about burned out. We're then going to deal with Idaho and the setting of the Osher lectures and the setting of McCall College. In the, in the state of Idaho, and we're going to, to begin to explore the struggle of bioethics in our region. We're going to be assessing Idaho's pandemic response and Idaho's nascent bioethics resources. We're then going to, to offer bi, uh, the, the, the clear understanding that bioethics is social and therefore political. 
Certainly it's individual. But the symmetry of individual is social. And so we'll, we'll continue to explore that idea. And therefore, it's a political conversation. And so what we'll be offering are the seeds of a new political theory. And that new political theory I call holistic, symmetrical ethics. We'll spend some time unpacking that so you have an opportunity of understanding what we're trying to say in a meaningful way. And then we'll do an introduction of a third case study, a family in crisis. Let's begin. The case study we offered to you last week, and I trust you've spent some time thinking about it. Let me just read it to you again. You are the director of nursing at a small rural hospital in Idaho. You are short-staffed and preparing a memo to ask nurses to take extra shifts to cover this schedule. Then an email hits your inbox. One of your nurses has made a terrible mistake last night. During the second of two double twelves, two 12-hour shifts, in actually it should be one day it, it, it's two immediate 12-hour shifts the nurse grabbed the wrong medication about nine hours into that second shift an agitated elderly patient needed a sedative reaching for versed he grabbed vercuronium a paralyzing drug he clearly failed to read the labor label the scanner to check ids was misplaced at the time and an alarm bell rang across the hall following delivery of the meds. As a result of these three issues, the patient died. You are a newly minted administrator with a young family. The police are asking for an interview. On reviewing the nurse's employee file, you remember you forgot to request the transcript of the nurse's degree during hiring. You were so exhausted at that time with sick kids. When it arrived after hiring, you saw that the nurse had an LPN certification instead of the RN that was verbally affirmed in the interviews. You were so short-staffed, you buried that mistake. At the end of the detective's interview, no mention of the education was asked. Do you admit your mistake? Your annual rev review is later in the afternoon. Do you admit your mistake? And so the flow that I ask you to, to uh, work with me on is uh, to, to carry us through some of, the, some of the tensions that arrive when you're in a very difficult moral situation. And the first question I ask is just, what do you do instinctively? What is your instinctive response? What shapes your decision? And, and for many of us, if we buried problems in the past, we're going to bury problems in the future. Uh, and, and, uh, and so we'll bury problems today. And so I think the instinct for an awful lot of people is to say nothing, is to say nothing to the police, nothing to in your, in your review process. Uh, and so if you have a different instinctive response, that's great. Um, uh, but the, then the question is what shapes your, your decision? And clearly this is a, a young family and a young family with an awful lot of challenges like all young families have. And you would want to protect your family. And that protection leads to a, an instinctive response to, to, uh, to not share what the problems are. Uh, and so that, that tends to shape your instinctive decision. 
What are two consequences that you need to consider that result from your instinct? And the consequences are the police might drill down into this and might discover that there actually is a problem uh, with the hiring process that you buried in the past. There's a problem in your response to that because you now should have told them uh, of them of the mistake. There will be uh, a, a long-term consequence in your annual review if you aren't forthcoming to your supervisors in the mistakes that are made so that corrections could be made. So there's an awful lot of consequences that can result if you continue to bury this. Any facts uh, that you might like to chat? Uh, obviously, you might want to review. As an administrator, you might not have uh, uh, an accurate assessment of what the drugs that are, are involved. So you might want to review the two drugs. You might want to review uh, the ID system and make sure uh, it, uh, what it's, how it should have operated and why it failed. You might want to response policies and procedures uh, as to how your hospital has trained its staff when it comes to these kinds of areas. You might want to review how your hiring process uh, has led to errors in the past that uh, may have contributed to all of this. You certainly want to ask who the primary stakeholders are, and that's the characters or the institutions that are clearly involved. And you want to try and broaden it out to a meaningful. Every case study, you can broaden it out to everybody on the planet, but that's not terribly meaningful. You try and make sure you review anyone that is a part of the conversation, but uh, you, make, you, you, you move to the middle ground as opposed to the, to the extreme numbers that you can include. And so the primary characters are you the administrator, the LPN that uh, is at the center of it, obviously the person that died is a, a primary stakeholder, uh, and uh, the family of the person that died. Um, uh, but you also want to begin thinking about uh, others, uh, shift supervisors that might have been available to you. You might want to, to think about uh, the people you report to, uh, your, your board or those uh, that are responsible for your, your actions. They're at least a secondary stakeholder and possibly a primary. Uh, you'll want to think about other patients that uh, might be in a similar situation uh, and deserve to be protected from errors by staff. Uh, and so you'll want to continue to, to, to move that, uh, make sure your analysis is meaningful and reasonable and not just minimal. What's the key, is, uh, the key ethical issue here? Uh, and so what I've, I ask students to do is to frame one key issue that you think is most important as a competing claim between two parties. Should one party do something or should the second party do something? And overall, it seems that we've got an awful lot of mistakes happening. And so should, uh, one of the things I think to think about is, is, do you have enough information that you actually can make meaningful changes at this point in time? There's a lot of mistakes going here. Or should you step back? Should you engage meaningfully in the immediate problem at hand? And there's going to be some demand to do that. Or should you step back and try and pick up all of the pieces and make sure you understand each and every piece? 
And so, so certainly uh, there is the issue of the LPN that needs to be, uh, uh, patients need to be protected, and you're going to have to do some immediate things. But my, my sense is, uh, is, to, is to allow your organization to assess and analyze the situation so that you understand all of the mistakes that are here and to give yourself some time for review. Um, and uh, should so and, and so if if you do that uh, it might begin to point you towards making sure all of the mistakes are on the table and uh, so that that allows you to review all of the mistakes uh, and so should you do something immediately uh, uh, and uh, continue to bury the evidence or should you uh, open up uh, and allow the mistakes to be uh, shared uh, with the with relevant parties and to begin to do that. And that's going to be a difficult decision for a young administrator. Uh, and, and so uh, to be able to work through it all. So what are the specific tensions, principles, or rights that are in tension? And obviously a primary one is the right to life. Uh, someone has died as a result of a mistake and their rights have been clearly violated. And so, so that's a primary uh, uh, right that has been, has been divined. Principles to do good and to do no harm. Um, obviously, uh, the LPN did harm in this situation and you'd want to make sure you can shift that to doing good for your patients. Um, uh, but you've also got the principle of, of lying. Uh, and so do you continue to lie to protect your, your past problems and your current problems, or do you forthrightly offer the truth in, in a meaningful way? Uh, and so those, all, those tensions, principles, and rights are all woven, and you may have thought of more that should be considered. And so, so my, my sense uh, is to apply the Williams method of moral assessment. And this is to, first of all, define the situation, and I think we've begun to do that, to assess the virtue. And the, and the, and the virtue of self-preservation is very, very important. And self-preservation in, in many ways includes your family. And so you have that sense of, of self-preservation. Um, but you now have to, to consider the self-preservation of also your organization, and your organization is under threat. So you have to invert the one you to the many your organization. Uh, and so what, what is the most important uh, decision you can make for the community that you're a part of, and not just you and your family, but also the many your, your community. And so if you assess the inversion, and you realize that your community desperately needs for you to make an important decision, you might begin to shift from your immediate instinct and to say, no, I think I should lay the, everything on the table here and make sure the community is aware of all the problems and I'll just have to live with the consequences of that. Uh, and then to recognize you're gonna have to oscillate wisely between self-preservation and and the community uh, and and the community having uh, self-preservation, so it can preserve itself. And you're going to have to oscillate between your instincts and the community's ne uh, needs and necessities. And so the plan of action, I think, maybe has shifted for for many uh, to to allow uh, the authorities to know uh, the problems at hand, to know your supervisor, to know the problems at hand, uh, and to be, to recommend 
a, a thorough investigation of all parts and parcels before any decision is made, whether it's to adjust your future or the community's future, uh, to, to make sure that there's a wise uh, and a relevant investigation. So I think in these kinds of challenging situations, the best advice is to, is to make sure all information is on the table and to step back and assess it all in context and to allow the best decision to be made. And so you can see here how the case study uh, can carry you from your instincts to a, to a richer, more meaningful plan of action that might be more helpful to you as well as your organization and to allow that organization to deal with your issues uh, in, the, in the context of, of how the overall system might be, might be done. I hope you've seen how the case studies can be helpful and meaningful in uh, allowing us to uh, step back and to first of all recognize that our instincts can carry us to the wrong place uh, and it can create more havoc and harm in the long run. Uh, and if we place ourselves in a, in, in a social structure, typically a committee or a, uh, a, a fair evaluator, um, that we can see a better result overall for both the individuals and the community at large. And that's really the point of our, our case studies, is to give you practice on doing that so you can see what that result is. Ah, oh, let me just deal with this problem there. There we go. It's something jumped into the, into the computer. Let's continue. What we'd like to do now is to assess Idaho's modest resources for bioethics. And if you're watching this from the East Coast, this is not your problem. You have a wonderful panoply of bioethics resources all around you. And in some ways, if you come from a major city on the West Coast, you're going to have, have better resources than Idaho will. And, and uh, so that Seattle and uh, some of the California cities uh, along the West Coast uh, have a, a reasonable, uh, have, have some bioethics resources. But when we step back and look at Idaho, I think we're going to see some real struggles uh, and very modest bioethics resources. When you look at our universities, you uh, see that um, uh, Boise State University uh, ha has no degree or certificate. And again, this was, this was researched in April of 2023. Uh, and if things have changed by the time you've seen this, this video, uh, I ask for you to recognize that uh, things change and people do uh, speak into problems that uh, are being worked out. So if, as of April 2023, this is what I was, as, as was able to discover, that there's no degree or certificate offering bioethics at Boise State University. I was able to discover one social work faculty member that had, had a level of advanced training in bioethics. And I was aware of one adjunct bioethics instructor that has been offering uh, courses to the university uh, in bioethics. And I appreciate the, the efforts that those individuals have made. When I reviewed uh, University of Idaho, I saw a bioethics minor, uh, and that would be for the undergraduate population. And clearly there was interest in bioethics with two faculty, with two faculty uh, offering uh, content in bioethics, but I wasn't able to see the, any of the training described to know if they've had bi advanced bioethics training uh, or whether this was uh, interest that had 
had developed in faculty and trying to, to work through it an issue to make sure students have a reasonable understanding of bioethics. At uh, Idaho State University, I was actually involved in the uh, development of the certificate in bioethics. Um, uh, I was able to see one associate professor that, uh, that was interested in bioethics, but I didn't see any bioethics training described. I was working as an outside uh, consultant at that point and recommending to them that uh, bioethics certificate might be important, and I was pleased to see that that certificate uh, came into place. When we look at our, at our uh, hospitals, uh, we uh, have two primary healthcare groups in, in uh, Idaho and a number of ancillary uh, hospitals. Of the two primaries, St. Luke's has chaplains and geneticists that are trained in bioethics. I worked with St. Luke's fairly extensively uh, prior to the pandemic and uh, worked with my colleague uh, 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 there at St. Luke's and, uh, and, and his training was in a master's in bioethics. Um, and he went on to serve as an adjunct professor at Northwest Nazarene University and we taught numerous courses to staff together. And so uh, um, uh, I've held back his name uh, as far as orally. You'll see it on the screen, but I didn't want to, to explore it too far uh, with him. An excellent bioethicist. At St. Alphonsus, the chaplains uh, uh, were responsible for ethics consulta consultation, and I was brought in as an outside consultant and taught many major workshops to staff, and that was pre-pandemic. Um, and uh, I trust uh, things have changed in the hospitals for, for, for bioethics. Uh, but that's, in summary, we don't have a known PhD level trained in bioethics in our major healthcare institutions at the time of review. I trust that changes in the near future. We do have a new uh, osteopathic medical school here in Idaho uh, and the Idaho College of Osteopathic Medicine is now serving our communities. I saw as I reviewed their particular program that they have a medical ethics that's offered during preclinical education in years one and two. But, but I couldn't see any faculty defined as trained in advanced bioethics. There were faculty that were obviously offering the courses, but I couldn't see what their preparation was. Uh, and so in the region, uh, when, when it comes to, to, to the Pacific Northwest, our uh, flagship university is the University of Washington, and the medical school there has ser served our region admirably through the decades. They offer an MA in bioethics, uh, and they have one faculty member with uh, MD and an MA in bioethics, and that also serve as a bioethics consultant. When we look at the entire nation, there are 11 PhD programs in bioethics, which isn't a lot, but the crisis is there's none west of the Mississippi. As we just saw, University of Washington doesn't offer a PhD. None of the California schools that I could discover offered a PhD. There were masters that were uh, being offered, but no PhD program. So if someone wants to serve Idaho in a PhD position, then they would have to travel east of the Mississippi 
to achieve their degree and then come back to help us. And so that particular challenge has not been overcome. Uh, and so that is a concern for developing uh, effective bioethics within our region if there's no PhDs. And you might ask, why, why does that matter? Why, why do you need a PhD? And, and the way that the university system is constructed is it requires a degree higher than what you're offering uh, so that you have effective, uh, uh, effective education and education that can be accredited. And so if you don't have the PhDs uh, available to you, uh, then you're, you're, you, you can't offer the master's program. And if you can't find <coughs> a cohort of PhDs, typically three or four or five, then you can't offer a PhD program. Um, and so that type of, of collection of knowledge to create a successful educational program has been very difficult uh, on the West Coast. Uh, and, uh, and so things need to change. And just to tell a personal story, um, uh, when I was searching for a bioethics program personally, there, there, was, uh, there was only one ethics program that I saw available to me, and that was at the University of Southern California, who offered a PhD in religion and social ethics with an emphasis in bioethics. And so some of the, the, uh, relig the religion or philosophy departments have been able to achieve the goal of trying to do that. But after I left, and that would uh, uh, be at the end of the 1990s, um, then that program was discontinued. And, uh, and so there, wasn't, there isn't now, to my knowledge, uh, a, 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 uh, an ethics program on the West Coast that even allows uh, people to uh, certify in bioethics, let alone a full-fledged PhD in bioethics. That's how I was able to accomplish the task of a PhD in ethics with an emphasis in bioethics. And so, you have to ask what this means. Bioethics education is accomplished by non-specialists in many areas, and that's a challenge. Uh, education must be offered by specialists for proper credentialing. Therefore, the West Coast is limited to a few master's degrees. And the budgets haven't been organized for specialists to solve the problem. I was privileged to have a conversation with our, our current governor, Go Governor Little, who was aware of the, uh, the ethicist problem in Idaho and was very helpful in encouraging me to continue to work on it, to make sure that we talk about it and get it out there so that we can slowly begin to impact the problem. Uh, because our ethicists are those who are solving public problems and, uh, and, are, and are credentialed to function in that way. And if we don't have active ethicist programs, then our specialists available for solving public problems are not available. And that creates uh, community problems. And it's obvious in the, in, the, in the healthcare field, but it's equally obvious uh, across the various areas that we have, where we have moral problems. So what, what, can, we, what can we propose? And so some of the pr proposed solution uh, is to build a tenured bioethics professorship at Idaho State University, which is our Idaho Healthcare University. And so we need to make sure that professorship is built with someone who's credentialed in the field. We need to grow uh, ISU's bioethics certificate to a minor or a master. 
And we need to encourage Boise State University and the University of Idaho to develop certificates in bioethics. We need to build an independent center of ethics to address topics as, with political ramifications, such as abortion. What I've tried to build here in McCall is McCall College, which has an independent uh, streak to it and uh, is, not, uh, is not affiliated with anyone else and allows that kind of independent assessment of moral problems. And there is a website available, available to you, www.ethics.center. Uh, and, and so that particular website is available for the development of moral issues here in the state. And I'd encourage those with an interest in that field to use that as a resource as we begin to, to grow the bioethics and ethics and social ethics conversation within the state of Idaho and in the Pacific Northwest. To grow interest in bioethics on the West Coast, we need to develop new ideas that break with the East Coast. Uh, there's no reason to build a, uh, an ethics center unless you have different ideas. Just go where everybody else is and uh, get your credential and bring it back. Uh, but if we have different ideas, then there's a rationale for bringing a strong bioethics or ethics community into the West Coast and to the Pacific Northwest. We need to break with the East Coast reliance on English and European thought. And that's a millennial old conversation. Where do we train uh, our philosophers, our ethicists, our social ethicists, our bioethicists? Who do we use as the primary uh, reference point for the, this kind of conversation? And typically you look to England and you look to the continent of Europe. Uh, and so we often start in Greece and then we move the dial uh, uh, over the, the, uh, the continent and land often in England. And so my question there is we have an eliminated an awful lot of people who have done some wonderful community development through solid moral thinking that need to be included. And so I invite us to become inclusive to Pacific thought such as Taoism, Buddhism, Shinto, Polynesian, as these are centers of successful moral traditions. And so I would encourage support for a Pacific Northwest bioethics as a new way of advancing bioethics worldwide. And in my mind, that would improve our current, and in my judgment, our failing bioethics philosophy. Let me begin to explore that and begin to develop what a Pacific Northwest bioethics built on a new idea might begin to look at. Let's review our current, uh, our, our current model, and my apologies for my spelling mistake there. Some of you may have quickly caught that. That we have reviewed that and introduced to you that our current bioethics philosophy and which is which is involved in our healthcare system has four principles autonomy to govern oneself beneficence to do good non-maleficence to do no harm justice giving to each one their right or due 
often shortened to fairness. How do we improve current thought? I'd like to introduce to you a new model for healthcare, a Pacific Northwest bioethic. And I'm using the term holistic symmetry for four symmetrical pairs in dynamic tension. One of the strangest part of our current healthcare model, and when you look at those four principles, you have to ask yourself, what's missing? And our misspelled word is the key to this. Healthcare or care. We must have an emphasis in care at a philosophical level if we're going to improve healthcare for our community. We must start with care and make sure that we emphasize care so that healthcare is stronger. That just seems so intuitive. Isn't it interesting that it's not one of the four principles? Oh yes, Beecham and Childress talked about care within their text, but from their focus in the 1970s, autonomy was the key to improving healthcare. And we've all seen that improvement as a result of healthcare and focusing on the individual and the individual freedom. But what are we not doing that we saw in the pandemic that caused a crisis in healthcare? Our care shifted. So we need to restart our healthcare philosophy with care. And then we have to ask that, that symmetrical question. Care that is virtuous becomes a vice if it's not paired with its symmetrical pair. So what's the symmetrical pair of care? And I would argue that it's the term detachment. Let me explain. Care is the courage to help others and engage in meaningful opportunities to make someone else's life better. Care, the courage to help others and engage in meaningful ways to allow others to thrive and survive and, and, and find meaning in life. But detachment is the courage to help oneself and withdraw. If you're constantly caring for someone, and you don't have the courage to detach, that care becomes a vice. It becomes a dependence. It becomes a failure to thrive. It, 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 the, the care becomes a vice. So to maintain its virtue, you have to pair it with its symmetrical pair. And that's detach and a meaningful step so the patient can re retain their own autonomy and they can retain their own ability to care for themselves. And so care must be paired symmetrically with detachment. But then Aristotle then uh, asks us, well, which one is more important? And I think for our, our healthcare, uh, in the healthcare model, it's crucial that we lean into care. 
and that we reserve detachment for a meaningful step so that our staff leans into care, but the administration is very aware that detachment is very, very important for staff health. And so that introduces the first principle, first symmetric principles uh, of our holistic symmetry. But we can't forget autonomy. Autonomy's uh, successes are, are clear and obvious to all of us. We need to have the freedom to manage our own health care. Um, but there is that sense when you ask autonomy, and let's define autonomy as the freedom to act, to act according to one's will. But if that virtue is unimpeded, it becomes a vice. And so to maintain its virtuous capacity, we must ask what's its symmetrical pair. And I would argue that's interdependence. I'm defining interdependence as the duty to act according to the community that one resides. We are inter interdependent on individuals around us. We are an individual, but we are an individual that functions in a community. And that community has rules and regulations that creates the moral structure that we can all thrive in. And so we have to ask, what does the community need? And our interdependence asks us to do that. And so we have autonomy in healthcare, but we must ask, how am I interdependent with each other? And if we think back to the pandemic, the vaccines created such a controversy in our community. Uh, and those that demanded liberty weren't going to take that vaccine. But their choice not to take the vaccine also had community consequences. And so there is a real failure in so many who have not been cued on this topic that they have a duty to their community as well. Their freedom is limited by the duty to the community. And that kind of thinking didn't, didn't, uh, didn't work well within the pandemic and created all sorts of problems for our communities and our nation. And so we have to recognize that we are individuals that are free, but we have a duty to consider our communities and we are interdependent with those in our community and must make good judgments as to how that inter interdependence plays out in a given community. But we need to lean into autonomy. It's interesting if this lecture were, was in, in Europe, we'd probably say you need to lean into interdependence uh, because that's a, that's a primary uh, consideration of the European community. And it's interesting that, that America has built uh, its, its uh, identity on freedom uh, and autonomy. And so we, we as, a, as those that are residing in the American context, need to lean into autonomy. It's, uh, it, it's an important part of who we are. And so I would recommend that. There would be a significant conversation between uh, the, uh, uh, on, this on, on this recommendation, but it's a good conversation. We need to recognize that beneficence and non-maleficence are symmetrical. Beneficence to do good, non-maleficence to do no harm. And so they're clearly in tension. Hippocrates saw this when he, when he introduced the, con the, the concepts uh, as working together. You need to do good, but don't do so much good that you do harm. 
you need to you need to be afraid of doing harm, but don't be so afraid that you don't do any good. The, the two concepts are symmetrical, and they they must work together. But we need to lean into beneficence. We need to lean into doing good. It's easy to step back and do nothing. But we need to make sure that we constantly invoke with our citizenry that doing good is why we're here. And we need to risk that. We need to risk doing harm uh, so that we can accomplish much good. And then to know in our wisdom uh, where, where that particular uh, dotted line might be in our own particular context. But we need to lean into doing good. And I'd like to conclude with a conversation on justice. Justice, as we've defined it so far tonight, is giving to each one their right or due. To protect the legal rights of all. To work for the moral rights uh, for the community. So justice is a crucial concept in the success of any community, certainly the success in the American context. We must always work towards justice. But the civil rights movement cued us that justice at times is not just. Justice sometimes is not just. And it took an individual, Martin Luther King, to awaken us to that fact that the justice for many in our community, the minority at that point, our African-American citizens, was not just. And he offered extraordinary righteous indignation at the horrors that were occurring during the civil rights movement, and in many cases all the way up until today, that is happening to the minority community of our larger community. That justice to the majority can mean injustice to the minority. Justice, by definition, are the rules and regulations of the majority. But that also can mean that there's imposition of injustice to the minorities of any particular community. And so we have to recognize that we must have individuals that offer righteous indignation, which I will define as to protect one's individual rights when the community is wrong. And so we have to recognize that those voices need to erupt because our justice isn't perfect. Its imperfection is often related to how we treat the minorities in our context. And so we need those who have the freedom to alert the majority of what injustices are occurring in the minority communities so that we can have a fair system or a fairer system. And that means we have to lean into justice. We have to recognize that the majority community, uh, if it's built fairly and honorably, is trying to do the best for all. But there are times when there's injustice to the minorities. And we have to work at improving the overall community. But we must lean into justice with a recognition that righteous indignation 
might erupt from what we perceive as justice, our minorities or individuals might recognize as injustice. What we've done today is introduce to you a new philosophy of healthcare, a new bioethic, a new way of seeing it. Oh, it's as old as Plato, but it's brand new to many of us. And I would like for you to begin that long conversation of thinking how to improve healthcare and to recognize that that will take a shift in what we have done for the past 40 years, 50 years, successfully improving healthcare. But the pandemic did not just damage our society, it opened the door to recognizing that our philosophies of healthcare is flawed. And that flaw can be corrected with ancient techniques. And the ancient technique of one and many, talked about by Plato, is a way to, to, to begin to recognize that, that the individual in community is symmetrical in its concepts. And that individual in healthcare has a responsibility to think about the overall community.